We are studying the book of Acts this fall, and we are actually kind of nearing the end of it. Um, brief little intro to Acts is that Acts is the sequel. It's part two of a two-part story that the uh, gospel writer Luke set out to write. He wrote the gospel of Luke, and then he tells part two of that story, the continued acts of Jesus in the world through the life of the church. He tells that story through the book of Acts, and in the opening lines of Acts, Jesus, before he ascends to be with the Father, gives the church their mission and the scope of their mission, and he says, take this gospel message of the resurrected Messiah, take this gospel message and take it, start in Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And so the gospel has begun in Jerusalem and then into Judea and Samaria and then it is beginning to spread. We saw last week, Daryl taught us in the conversion of Saul, conversion of Paul. This is, a, this is not just a key moment in the book of Acts, this is a key moment in human history that many people would say um, Paul is potentially the single most influential person in the history of the world. Um, and so this conversion of this Pharisee who was persecuting the church and now he's brought into the messianic community of, of Jesus is now converted to Christianity. So the gospel is beginning to spread. The, the domino effect hasn't quite happened yet where it has reached the ends of the earth, but it's big things are happening, like last week, the conversion of Saul. And now we see another kind of massive shift, another massive happening. It may not seem like a big deal as the text is read, but what takes place in our story today is kind of another seismic shift in the, the gospel message going forward from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. We in our series and the book itself uh, kind of pick up the pace at this point. Um, we've only got four sermons left in the book of Acts and we're not even like halfway through the book of Acts in terms of like chapter count. Um, so we've only got four more chapters be or four more sermons because the pace, kind of what begins to happen, happens at a rapid rate throughout the rest of the book. So little backstory for chapter 11 is that Peter, one of the apostles, kind of the chief apostle at this point, um, he has had this crazy vision, and in this vision, he is then, through a, a, a crazy series of events, he then goes to a Gentile area, Caesarea, non-Jewish area, to share the gospel of Jesus. This is kind of the first time that an apostle has taken the gospel message outside of Jerusalem. So Peter goes, and he converts these Gentiles, Cornelius is one of them, and that's the story of chapter 10. But we're actually studying chapter 11 because word of the chapter 10 events that the gospel has gone to this Gentile area outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel, that word gets back to Jerusalem and some people aren't happy about it. So Peter has to basically retell the story of chapter 10. He's telling them what happened in chapter 11. So that's, where, that's a little backstory, chapter 11. We're gonna be in Acts chapter 11, starting in verse one. It says this. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had, had also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. 
But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. It's an area outside of Israel, Gentile area. And the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he, had, how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as, as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. It's the word of the Lord, amen. Okay, a lot going on here. Another kind of brief summary, just so that, because I've read this passage, you know, 20 times this week, trying to understand it. Reading it once, I won't assume that you totally get the story that just took place. Um, but here's what happened. Peter is retelling in our chapter, chapter 11, the events that took place in chapter 10, where this group of Gentile, non-Jewish people are, are, they receive a gospel message because Peter is sent there from this crazy group of people who had a vision right after Peter has his vision. Peter has this vision about animals. And it's not just he has this vision about animals. He has a vision of animals. He's hungry, sitting on a rooftop. We find out in chapter 10, he's hungry. And, a, and this sheet descends from the skies in his vision. And on that sheet are animals, and not just any animals, but what would have been to an Orthodox Jew, unclean animals, ceremonially unclean animals that they couldn't eat. So Peter has this vision, and Peter is shocked by this vision of these unclean animals, and he hears a voice of the Lord, the voice of Jesus, saying, Peter, it's okay to eat these animals. Kill these animals and eat. You're hungry, dude. Eat some bacon. And Peter goes, I can't do it. Surely not, Lord. I will not do this. I've never eaten anything unclean. I would never let anything touch my lips that would make me unclean. And the Lord says again, hey, Peter, kill and eat these animals. Your ceremonial laws of food, your dietary restrictive laws, those were laws in the Old Testament to be of the Jewish people and in the Israelite community. But I'm telling you that those laws are of no purpose anymore. I'm telling you that those laws were really always just signposts. They didn't actually make you clean and unclean, like at the heart level. They were signposts, Peter, that made a deeper reality of the kind of cleansing that you needed in me, Peter. I'm telling you that those food laws don't serve a purpose anymore because I've come. Those dietary laws are out. So Peter has this crazy vision and then immediately we're told three Gentile men show up at his door and they said, hey, are you Peter? Like we were told to come here. This man back home had a vision of you, told us to come find you. Will you come to us and tell us whatever message you have to tell us that we're told would save us? So Peter goes with them, meets a man named Cornelius who had the vision. Peter shares the gospel with him and then a lot happens. He and his household and his community are all brought into the faith. They're all saved, they're baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends on them. And so essentially what Peter discovers in the events of chapter 10 with this vision that's going, the gospel going to the Gentiles, what Peter discovers is then the revelation about the food 
hey, Peter, these things aren't unclean anymore. You thought they were unclean. I'm telling you they're clean. And the revelation about the food is the same revelation about Gentile people. He actually says it in chapter 10. Hey, God showed me that these animals are no longer unclean, and that was meant to be a microcosm to say the Gentile people aren't unclean either because I've cleaned them too, the Lord says to Peter. They're not on the outside anymore. These people who you have kept at bay, these people who have had, you've drawn the inner circle. It's the Israelites, it's the Jews, and it's the Gentiles. I'm telling you that line is gone. These people have been cleaned up. These people are not on the outside. These people belong to me, Peter. That's the story of chapter 10. That's what Peter recounts for us in chapter 11. So the question is, why does he have to recount it? Well, because word had made it back to Jerusalem kind of the the central and only city right now where the church has existed. And these Jerusalem Jewish Christians got word that Peter was sharing the gospel and sharing meals with unclean Gentiles. And some of the Jerusalem Christians, they're called the circumcision party, which I heard from a small group this week that someone thought it was like an actual party, like a birthday party. Um, It's not. Um, But it means like the circumcision group of people right, like the circumcision group. Um, Circumcision group, circumcision party were not happy about Peter sharing the gospel with Gentile outsiders. So what was this circumcision party? Circumcision, like the dietary laws, but far more significant to an Orthodox Jew, circumcision was the physical sign of the covenant of God to his people. You belong to the people of God if you were circumcised. You belong to the kingdom of God if you were circumcised. It was the physical indicator that was a sign that not only you belong to the covenant group of people, but that you were in. It's all throughout the Old Testament. You do not get into the people of God in the Old Testament unless you are circumcised. It was the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham, which is the founding covenant of God's people. And so up until this point, if you can imagine this, there is some like kind of understandable resistance from the Jerusalem Christians. We get it a little bit. That up until this point, the only people who have been brought into the faith are Jews. And so all that has been understood so far about this Jesus movement is that it is kind of just a movement within Jerusalem, within Judaism. It's kind of just a Jewish revolution, and it certainly is and was. And so these logical thoughts of the circumcision party thought this way. If Gentiles are becoming Christians, they should also become Jewish culturally. They should also become Jews with the sign of the covenant. Shouldn't they have to undergo the procedure that we had to undergo to join this party? Shouldn't any convert to Christianity be circumcised when they become Christians? Because isn't Christianity just a sign, just a revolution of Judaism? And so the the party in Jerusalem hears word that the Gentiles are brought in and they're saying, whoa, 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 Pete, whoa, whoa, whoa. You shared the gospel with folks and brought them into the fold of the kingdom and you didn't make sure they were circumcised? Peter shared a meal with them. They can't believe he shared a meal with them because it was a massive deal to share a meal. It meant like acceptance, it meant inclusion, it meant I'm bringing you in, I approve. We are one together. So they get really mad that he shared a meal with them because it's showing that Peter thinks that these Gentiles are just in. It means that Peter thinks these Gentiles can be accepted and they're still uncircumcised. And so here's the thought pattern of the circumcision party. If those outsiders are uncircumcised, then they may actually be saying that all of our ceremonial and civil and cultural laws are being thrown out. And if all of our ceremonial and cultural and dietary laws are being thrown out, 
What does that do to our sense of an identity? What does that do to who we love to view ourselves as? What does that do to who we love to believe ourselves to be? That's the question of the passage. That's a lot of explanation to set up the question of the passage. Could Gentile outsiders really become members of this new community without conforming to the demands of the Old Testament law? Could they? That's what's at stake here. That's massive. That's why this is a seismic shift kind of chapter. That's what Peter here has to defend. That's the conversation he has to have with this party. Guys, the Lord sent me to the Gentiles, and guess what? He says this at the end of his recap. He says, guys, he sent them the same Holy Spirit that he sent us. I watched it happen. I was at Pentecost. I know what it's like when the Holy Spirit descends, and I watched the Holy Spirit descend on these people, which means they're in. We can't keep them out anymore. No, they're not circumcised. No, they eat food we've never touched, but they're in. They're in not because they kept the law. They're in because Jesus cleaned them up just like he cleaned us up and you need to deal with it. Is basically what Peter says, my interpretation. But he's, he's passionate about this revelation to the circumcision party back home. We're told later in Acts chapter 11, just a few verses after our story, this is the very first time in history that any group of people are called Christians. It's the first time that term is ever used. Why? Why does Luke want us to know that later on in this, in this chapter where all this is happening? Because up until this point, early Christians were all Jewish, and so anyone who saw what was going on said, well, that's just a Jewish thing that they're doing over there. But the world has never seen anything like this. Jews and Gentiles coming together, walls being broken down, barriers being crossed. People had to start calling it something different. It's not just a Jewish religion anymore. So they started calling them Christians, Christians. Like something about that Christ guy has done something that the world has never seen before where Jews and Gentiles are feasting together. It's a little bit like us receiving new members this morning. I mean, you heard the, the disparity of the temperatures of the sleep, but no. I mean, if you got to know all these people up here, and I don't even know all of them, but I know many of them, and I know all the other members that have joined over the years, we're very, very, very different people. We have different political views. We come from different socioeconomic classes. We're of different races. We have different thoughts about how the world should work. And it's because the church is the only place where people can actually put down the things that normally are walls of hostility, that normally are dividers, and they can tear those walls down and say, but we can agree on Jesus, and we want to worship and follow him together. Only in the church can that kind of different and new thing exist. And so in chapter 11, they need a new word for it. What do they call it? Christians. Christians, they're doing something that only exists in Jesus. And this is the assignment that Jesus has given his apostles. Like they would have understood maybe in theory the assignment in chapter one where Jesus says, now take this message of the gospel, take this message of the resurrection, take this message of reconciliation. In Jerusalem, great, that's our people. Jerusalem, our Judea and Samaria, that's kind of our people. And then to the ends of the earth, oh, that's not our people. They would have understood that in theory, but now they're actually having to deal with the fact that this church that's growing and spreading is actually full of people who will not always look like them. And so here's what's dying in the Jews in this chapter and in Peter. The laws that have made them feel just a tad more righteous than everybody else are gone. In fact, this new reality, the church embracing that reality is so vital to Luke, the author, he puts this story in his book twice. 
Like it happens in chapter 10 and then he wants the reader to reread about it in chapter 11. It's, it's such like a mirror image. Peter leaves out a few details in his retelling of chapter 11 that actually happened in chapter 10. But Luke is trying to communicate something. Hey, this massive thing happened in chapter 10 where outsiders are being brought in and I'm gonna make the reader reread about Peter having to convince other people that it actually happened. Happens twice. If the church is going to be a biblical church, it must emphasize this reality today as well. And here's the reality that Luke is trying to communicate. Here's the reality that the Lord had to kill in Peter in his vision. And here's the reality that Peter had to kill in the circumcision party. There is a bent in every single human heart that loves to feel superior to other people. When Peter is first shown this vision, crazy vision, sheet descending, animals on it, saying, you can take these and eat. Why does he resist it, you think? I promise you it's not about taste buds. It's not about like, oh, those bacon seems gross, said no one ever. Like he's not, he's not saying like, I don't think I would like the taste of those things. He tells you why. The reason why Peter will not eat the food he has originally shown when he's starving is that he wants to keep his identity of superiority. That's what his response is in verse eight. That's what he's saying to, to Jesus, who's talking to him. Jesus himself comes to Peter and says, these animals are good now. You're hungry, Peter. I'm telling you, you can eat it all. Enjoy the buffet. And look at what Peter says. He won't do it. He says in verse eight, but I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Because he would lose, in his mind, he would lose an identity if he ate something like that. He would lose his record of perfection. He would lose his self-created identity of cleanliness. Notice how when Jesus comes to him, Jesus is saying to him, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Peter doesn't say to him, Man, that looks delicious. Man, I'm starving. Are you sure, Jesus? Like, are you sure about this? Because that would be kind of tough, but man, that, that, would, that would be great if all these food laws were gone. He doesn't say that. He says, by no means, Jesus. H no, in other words. Like, I'm not doing this. I'm clean. Clean compared to what, Peter? Clean compared to everybody else that doesn't follow these laws. He would lose his ability to look down on others. He would lose his, and this is all our favorite version of this, he would lose his perfection by comparison. We've all got it. His commitment to keeping his record of righteousness intact in his mind outweighs his commitment to follow Jesus' very explicit words. Think, think about this now. If Jesus came to you and said, hey, you can go eat this, it's okay now. Would you argue with Jesus himself who made the laws to begin with? Nope, won't do it, Jesus. I need something that those food laws give me. That's what Jesus is killing in Peter. And it's the exact same thing that the circumcision party, after it's been killed in Peter, Peter then has to go kill it in the circumcision party. He comes back to Jerusalem and tells him who, who he ate with, who he shared the gospel with, who's been brought in. And they say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You ate a meal with who now? You shared the gospel with who now? What kind of monster are you, Peter? They can't come in. Our law keeping makes us feel better than them. 
You can't take that away from us, Peter. You can't destroy what we've built. Same is true for us. We do this with our neighbors. We do this with our jobs. We do this with our spouses. Let me have a law that I love to keep, even if it's a great law. Let me have a law that I love to keep so that I can keep looking down on people who don't keep it like I do. Comes out in phrases like this. I don't, I would never raise my kids that way. You know, I would never let my kids do that. Or, well, that's just not how I've chosen to run my business. You know, I mean, that, the, that competitor, those, those people over there, that, that's how, that maybe is how they want to run a, a, you know, a, a shop. That's maybe how they want to run a restaurant. That's maybe how they want to run you know, a, a music industry company, but that's not how we do it over here. I can't believe that those people over there are struggling with that. I can't believe that Johnny and Sally, sorry if Sally you're in here, but I can't believe if Johnny and Sally, I can't believe they struggle with that. We, we don't struggle with that. Man, that's so sad for them. Or this is another one. It's kind of like this weirdly um, confusing statement that I, I make and people make all the time. We're like, we know, we know we're not perfect, but we know we're more perfect in the area where, than, you're, than you're failing in. So we say things like this. Well, I may have issues, but at least I don't do that. Can't tell you how many times I've said that about my in-laws. <laughs> They're not here this morning either. Like, I can't, I can't tell you, well, you know, I'm, I mean, we're not perfect. I'm sure we're hard to love too, but... I'm not impossible to love like they are. <laughs> the, here, here's, we kind of come up with these lists when we're judging people like this, when we love to look down just a little bit on people. Well, I guess they should have just saved more money then. They wouldn't be in that financial situation if they had just saved more. I guess they should have just worked harder, you know. Like they can't quite pay the rent. Are they, 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 they didn't get into the school they wanted to get into. They didn't get the job they wanted to get. They didn't get that deal to go through. I guess they should just work a little. Are they still struggling with that? They're still wrestling with that issue of their life and I've known them for a long time and they're still wrestling with that. I guess they should have just been more disciplined. I guess they should have taken their spirituality or their emotional health or their relational maturity. They should have just taken it a little bit more seriously and worked on it a little bit harder. I guess they should have just worked out more. They wouldn't still be struggling with their body image if they just worked out a little more. I read an article in The Atlantic this week, because I'm hip, uh, and uh, it's called The Return of the Scarlet Letter. Man, it's good. It's like a referral back to the Nathaniel Hawthorne uh, novel about the Scarlet Letter, the A that they make print, is that her name, where? Um, I remember high school English, but they, the, the, the return of the scarlet letter is this idea that we're touted as the most inclusive and pluralistic culture of all time. Everybody's welcome. You can believe whatever you want to believe. Like the, no one can tell you your truth and no one, no one can speak into what you want to believe until you don't agree with that. And so it's talking about cancel culture and essentially the idea that we love handing out scarlet letters. We love it. We love placing it on people and saying, well, they, they don't do it the right way. We love saying who's in. We love saying who's out. We love drawing lines for who is on the right side of history and who isn't. And maybe an indication that uh, we all do this inherently and subconsciously is that as we're beginning to talk about self-righteousness and looking down on others and who keeps others in and who pushes other people out, are you thinking about yourself right now or someone else? 
Like, are you thinking about the other side from whoever disagrees with you, like in your family, like, man, they really do this. <laughs> You're doing it to them. If you don't know the places where you do this, where you love to have laws to keep so that you can keep looking down on others, look for the place in your life where you make this guttural sound. Because <laughs> that'll let you know the places that you think I'm just a little bit better and I can't believe that they're doing that. <laughs> that little disdain sigh is a great indicator of where you feel better than other people, where you love to have just an inch or a mile of superiority over other people. That's what the Lord has to kill in Peter. That's what Peter is sent to kill in the circumcision party. And it's what this text is meant to kill in us. And here's the biblical response to this. Here's the biblical path forward in this. If you have been saved and clean by Jesus, you have absolutely zero right to feel superior to anybody. Jesus tells a parable in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 20, about a man that owns a vineyard. Parable of the owner of the vineyard, it's called. And in the story, the vineyard owner goes out at the, at the crack of dawn, 6 a.m., and he goes out to find workers for the day to work in his vineyard which normally would have been enough. Like he goes out at nine to find workers for the 12 hour shift and they paid in a day's wages back then. And so you work for a day, you get a day's wages. But then this vineyard owner goes back out, not just at six o'clock, he goes back out at nine o'clock and 12 o'clock and three o'clock. And then at the 11th hour, literally at, at, at five o'clock, the vineyard owner goes back out to find more laborers to come and work in the vineyard for an hour compared to the 12 hour workers in the beginning. And then it comes time to pay and they're all gathered around and they're all expecting their, their day's wages. And so the people who worked 12 hours are expecting to get a little bit more than people who worked one hour, right? That would seem fair. Except when Jesus goes to pay the five o'clock workers, he pays them a full day's wage. And he pays the people who actually worked a day's wage, he pays them fairly a day's wage. And Jesus says at the end of this parable, that's what my kingdom is like. I give one hour workers and I give 12 hour, uh, 12 hour workers the same riches. And the 12 hour workers are livid. They can't believe it. To which the owner of the vineyard says to them, hey guys, newsflash, this is my money. I can do whatever I want to do with my money. Is it not mine to give away? And why are you complaining about you getting paid a very fair wage today? You agreed at 6 a.m., did you not, correct me if I'm wrong, to work a day. I paid you for that day. Why are you grumbling about the people that I chose to be extravagant with? Doesn't the landowner, doesn't the vineyard owner have the right to show grace to whom he wants to show grace to? See, and only the self-righteous, only the self-righteous think that we're 12-hour workers. The point of the parable is to say, hey, dudes, women, you're all one-hour workers. All of you. In fact, you might be like 559 workers. The, 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 there's been only one 12-hour worker and his name was Jesus, and it's not you. You've all been brought in at the 11th hour. You've all been brought in and given way more than you deserve. This is the Jesus of the kingdom. He doesn't make payments to you depending on what you've done or haven't done. 
He doesn't disseminate grace to you based on how you've been doing or feeling. He doesn't pour out his lavish love on you based on what your record has been this week. The grace of Jesus depends on Jesus, not you. And his stance towards you depends on how he feels about you, not on how you feel about him or even how you feel about you. Because Jesus, the owner of the vineyard, is far more gracious than you know. And he can bring into his kingdom whoever he chooses to bring into his kingdom. He brought you in, didn't he? (laughs) Therefore, you and I don't get to look down on others that he's brought in. This is so counterintuitive. This is so waging war against our flesh and our nature. This is so hard to get. We balk against this idea. We resist it. In the Acts story, if you go back and read it enough times, one thing begins to kind of stand out in the recap that Peter gives and in the actual story of chapter 10. It, took, it takes three, what one theologian called, hammer blows from the Lord to drive this stake into Peter's heart before he loses his prejudice and his spiritual superiority. Three times. He has a vision like, that should be enough, y'all. Like, if, he, if you saw a vision from the Lord saying, hey, take and eat, and I've made these animals clean, and, now, and like, you can eat them now, and don't call unclean what I've called clean, that should be enough. Peter still doesn't get it. Guess what he needs to then really get it? Other people have to come up and show up at his house at, exact that moment, at exactly that moment. And then he gets to the house, and Cornelius confirms the same thing, and then Peter gets it takes three hammer blows. And then if you go back and read verse 10, the vision itself, this blew me away. On like the ninth read through this week, I've realized, oh my gosh, on the vision itself, the vision has to happen three times. Like he doesn't, he doesn't get it. He doesn't want it to be true. He doesn't like the reality that the Lord is showing him. The persistent patience of the Lord to draw Peter in, to tear down his walls, to kill his self-righteousness. One, it shows how passionate the Lord is about doing this and showing us this, but it also shows how hard it is for us to get it. Of course it's hard. Peter's losing the thing that he thinks justifies him. Peter's losing the thing that he thinks makes him better than everybody else. Peter loves the law that lets him feel superior to others, and we do too. We love holding on so tight to the places that we think makes us better than other people. We love it. I'm more woke than them. I'm more righteous than them. I'm more informed than them. I work out more than them. I'm more educated than them. I'm more wealthy than them. I'm more responsible than them. I'm more emotionally in tune than they are. That's just my list. And to lose any of those things would feel like death. Do you know what would happen to your marriage if you lost this, this view of superiority of your spouse? Do you know what happened to your family? Do you know what happened to your roommates? Do you know what happened to your office? Do you know what happened to this city if we all lost this view of superiority over other people? Something would happen that happened in the first century. Something the world didn't even have a name for. We have to call it something else now, I guess, because we don't have a word to describe this. So if, we're, if we need to lose it, if we need to lose our sense of superiority, 
but it's really difficult to do that. And we're not gonna have a, a vision of Jesus descending animals on a sheet. He may do that for you. If he does, I'd love to hear about it. But if we're probably not gonna have a vision of Jesus doing a vision like that for us three times, how might we lose it? And what in the passage is the equivalent of the hammer blows for the stake in the heart for us to lose our sense of self-righteous superiority? Well, when Peter sees the animals on the sheet, he says, well, I would never eat something that's unclean. Which means he's declaring to Jesus the, the status of these animals. And the voice says to Peter, don't you dare call unclean what I've made clean. And then in the chapter 10 version of the actual story that we read from Luke, when Peter gets to Cornelius' house and he shares the gospel with these uncircumcised Gentiles, he shares the gospel with them and Cornelius is kind of taken aback like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. A Jew is coming to eat with a Gentile. Peter says to Cornelius, essentially, almost verbatim, the same words that Jesus said to Peter about the food, Peter says to Cornelius about people. My God said, how dare I call unclean what he has made clean. I will not call you unclean, Cornelius. You're clean now. If Jesus has washed someone with his blood, you have absolutely no right to look down on them. Don't you dare call unclean what he has cleaned. But here's the kicker. He feels that way about you too. He's cleaned you. He's made you spotless and without blemish. And don't you dare call unclean what God has made clean by the blood on his hands. You don't get to talk to you about you that way. And so the only people that never think they're better than others are the people who are wrecked by a Jesus who considered them better than himself. That's what Philippians 2 says, that in his humility, Jesus thought you more valuable than him. Jesus actually thought you worth more than him. And he gave his very life to prove it. And he went to the bottom of your darkness and he cleaned you from all of it. And so if you know that that's what Jesus has done for you, it kills all of the self-righteous superiority when we look at others. We're all one-hour workers in here. And we've all been made clean. And the more we ruminate on our Jesus who has made us clean, the more humble we will be and the more we will invite others in to the same feast. Let's pray. Jesus, it's hard to hear these words not just because it kills our our keeping of our own self-righteous laws, it's hard to hear these words that you might look at us as we, as we think of ourselves in our own self-condemnation, you would tell us, don't you dare call unclean what I've called clean. Don't you dare call unclean what I've made clean. And so Jesus, as we ruminate on it, would you have it chisel away at our bedrock of self-righteousness that we've built our life on we love looking down on others. We love looking down on people who don't do it like we do it. So would you kill it in us by showing us the beauty of who you are? Would you wreck us? Would you wreck us with the, the story of the king? 
who considered us better than himself to come and make us his own, we pray. In your name, amen.